Thank you, Greg. I, I cannot improve upon that. Uh, so I, I'm going to be a little bit more, it's going to be a little bit more kind of a scattering of disorganized thoughts. That was very orderly and understandable. This will be who knows what's about to happen. So um, thank you, Greg. Seriously, that's, that's just a tremendous uh, help for, for, for what I'm about to say. Just be, be aware that these are some of the more intense charged issues we can talk about. And uh, again, this documentary we'll be watching, it's not trying to be mean-spirited. Uh, it's not trying to be cruel. It's trying to be clear. And clarity is not cruelty. Uh, and so they are, in this documentary, it's going to criticize people that we, in some ways, like, uh, people that I've benefited from in my Christian experience, uh, people like Matt Chandler, uh, people like Russell Moore, people like, uh, well, there's a lot of people, but they're going to they're show how elements of what they've been teaching and saying, and like, when I say Matt Chandler, this is a guy, like, when I was a new Christian, he had an enormous impact on me for good, but over the years, I've increasingly been drifting apart from him on some of these issues, so just be aware that we're not saying that automatically Matt Chandler's not a Christian or something. We're, we're simply saying on some of these important issues, there has been uh, a creeping in to the SBC that is not healthy, not helpful, so keep all that in mind as we go. Let me zero in on a, on a couple specific issues here. So when you, when you, when you take the framework that uh, was just described by Greg, this idea of uh, you're either an oppressor or you're an oppressed person, and this is going to be based on one of those little demographic boxes that you check. So uh, j just to throw this out there, I am the worst kind of person, me personally. I'm the worst kind of person that could exist right now because I am an oppressor in every category that I exist in. Are you ready for this? First of all, I'm a Christian, and Christians are considered the oppressive religion because they've had control of culture in the West for a long time, so that's called controlling the hegemony, right, hegemonic dominance. So I'm a Christian, that puts me in the oppressor category. Number two, I am heterosexual. Number three, I am cisgendered. That's an amazing word. If you're not familiar with that, that means that my internal sense of my gender matches my biological gender. Okay, so transgender would be my internal sense of being male or female does not match my biology, but I am cisgender, so my, my, uh, my internal sense of gender and my outward gender, my biology match. Number, I guess this is number four, I'm able-bodied. Uh, number five, I am a man. Number six, I am white. And then I don't know if, I'll just, also a pastor I think has got to be bad, so I'll just throw that one in there too. So, I mean, by definition, I am the worst kind of person in our, in our current culture. Well, why, why would that be argued to be that way? Well, you have something called standpoint epistemology. Stand, so, from where I'm standing, epistemology is how you know things. So, standpoint epistemology is what you know based on where you're standing. Everybody got that? Standpoint epistemology. Uh, Vody Bauckham calls it ethnic Gnosticism which we won't explain, but it's the same meaning. Uh, so, standpoint epistemology means that from my standpoint, given the boxes that I just checked, I have a certain limited perspective of what I see as reality. So, think of this, I'm stealing these things, but think of this as a colorblindness illustration. So, if I match all the dominant oppressor categories, you know, straight, white, cisgendered, Christian, able-bodied man. If I check all, cisgendered, I, I think I mentioned that. If I, if I check all those boxes, then I have a very limited view of reality. Think of it as colorblindness. I can only see things in a very narrow window because I can only see the dominant culture's perspective because I am the dominant culture on all those check boxes. But let's say that you are, uh, you could say, a Muslim or a transgendered or uh, not able-bodied or you're a woman or you are whatever, okay? 
If you're a woman, uh, then you have knowledge of oppression, being a woman, that a man cannot have by experience. So you not only can see the world through the man's lenses because you live in a male-dominated society, not only can you see the male perspective, but you also see the female perspective of oppression. Therefore, whenever a woman speaks into gender issues, her voice automatically trumps the voice of a man. And if a man disagrees with a woman about gender issues, he is mansplaining, I love that word, or he is sexist by definition. So if a man says, well, actually, the Bible says that a wife is supposed to submit to, gladly submit to her husband, well, that's mansplaining, that's sexist, and you don't even know what you're talking about because you live in a male-dominated society and you're blind to the oppression that women have endured. Now, women have, generally speaking, endured dif- different kinds of oppression. I'm not, I'm not saying that's never happened, but what I'm saying is the woman, therefore, has a, almost can see more colors than the man. You see? Now, keep going. Let's say that you're a black woman. In that case, you have access to oppression regards to race and being female. So now you see more colors, right? You see, you see reality more clearly. Let's say that you are a transgender black woman. Now you understand transgender oppression and you can see reality more clearly from that perspective. And what's happening now is called intersectionality. So you're not just one demographic, you're a bunch of them. And if you haven't noticed in our society, the more boxes of oppression, you personally can tick off, like the more you can just, okay, I'm this, 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 and this, then the more clarity with which you have to see reality as it actually is, and therefore, your voice becomes uh, not just a voice that should be listened to, but your voice becomes more and more authoritative. And the more oppressor boxes you check off, like I just did for myself, the less your opinion matters, and it it begins to drop. And so, if, um, now let me just stop and say, If someone has been oppressed, should we as Christians listen to that oppression? 100% yes. Uh, If if a husband has beat and abused his wife, uh, that is absolutely evil, unacceptable, obviously, and we should listen, and we should learn, and we should navigate, and we should should learn things from that. But But there's something that goes on here that basically says, at a certain point, you don't just listen and learn from oppression, which is legitimate, but at a certain point, you are no longer allowed to speak if you are in the oppressor category. So let, let me, let me uh, give you some, uh, some examples here. Um, so, intersectionality, you've got race, gender, sexual orientation, s- transgenderism, uh, and on it goes. Now, if you take that chart and you look at it, in our culture, it is virtually always acceptable to criticize the oppressor group, and it's virtually never acceptable to what? Criticize the so-called oppressed group, okay? I'm not saying there hasn't been oppression, but think about this for a second. Um, It started showing up in my Bible classes. I teach high school, and um, I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. This this was going on for years, and it's always made me scratch my head. So, if if gender roles come up in Bible class, which they do every year, and we're talking about marriage, or even worse to some would be church, that the Bible says women should not be elders or pastors of churches. I mean, just to say that out loud in a room is just like, you, the air just disappears. And so, this past year, your brother, Jerry, Mike, was teaching a eighth grade Bible last year, and uh, they were working through Paul's letters, and they did First Timothy. And they're just reading the letter. I mean, I don't even think he was commenting. He was just reading the letter. And they got to First Timothy 2, and, you know, it's going, you know, you kind of go in order, so every student reads the next verse, and you go around the room. And it gets to some student, this poor soul, and they have to read, you know, the, the verse, um, 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and you know, it goes on. So, someone reads that in the class, and this didn't used to happen a few years back, but now it does. The entire class bursts into laughter. Now, this was unexpected by your brother, and so Mike's like, what's going on? And then they just start shredding the verse. Like, just the whole class gangs up on that verse and is like, that is ridiculous. Like, what in the world is this? And this, these are all, you know, Christian kids. It's like a Christian school. All the kids just are laughing at the actual text of the Bible. Now, stuff like that starts happening. You start scratching your head. Then let me give you another example. The topic of homosexuality, I mean, I teach senior apologetics the number one issue, when I asked my students a week ago, I said, what is the number one, uh, give me the top three issues that are making people your age doubt Christianity and fall away? And they said, LGBT+. That issue is maybe number one reason. They said, we have friends that we know right now, like I'm going to youth group with these kids, they're rejecting Christianity right now, like in the process right now, because of what the Bible says about marriage, sexuality, gender, those things. And so, when I, in class, if I ever criticize the way Christians have at times mistreated the homosexual community, which has happened, right? If I talk about that, my students love it, right? Because I'm talking about the oppressor group, Christians, you know, mistreating the oppressed group, the LGBT group. If I say, listen, at times some Christians have been uh, really over the top in, their, in the way that they've t- dealt with uh, even abusing homosexuals, that's unacceptable. Every class is like, yes, go for it. Like, that's awesome. Then when I talk about the sinfulness And even, let me use the word, the evil of all homosexual fantasy and desire and action, to say that that's evil, every, almost every kid in my class is like, okay, but guys, you know, Christians have been really, we've been mean to them, and a lot of Christians have bullied them, and like, okay, listen, okay, I'm not for that, but the Bible is crystal clear on this, and they want to say, okay, we can criticize Christians who've been harsh toward the homosexual community, but we can't really say much negative about the LGBT community. We almost feel a kind of compassion for them. They didn't choose this. They didn't ask for this. This is just the, they, this is just the way they are, and they're just trying to be true to kind of who they are. And so, what, what, I, what I started realizing was that there is a, that they're ready to be harsh toward male aggression, but they don't want to talk about female submission. What, what is that emotionally going on in my students? They, they want to be harsh toward Christians who've been harsh toward the LGBT community, but they want to be sympathetic and compassionate to all LGBT people, even to the point of justifying some of their behavior. And then you keep going through, through this list of things. Now, and same with cisgender and transgender and all those things. So what I started realizing was my students are absorbing the intersectional framework, probably not even knowing what it is. Because their emotions line up with the intersectional framework, not with the biblical framework. And that, that was amazing. So, I, Vody Bauckham has pointed out, and he's in this video at a point, Vody, Vody has said, you, you know something's wrong when if a pastor today is going to address the issue of homosexuality, they do about a 15-minute caveat session at the front of the sermon. So here's what happens. The, 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 the pastor, I guarantee you, you go look at any, just a random pastor online, this is how it will start. Guys, I'm not here to bash homosexuals. Uh, I love homosexuals. I have a lot of friends who are gay, and I've spent a lot of time with them, and I want you to know I'm not here to, to criticize them harshly. I, I love them. Okay, now, now, Vody said, now, stop for a second. You can oftentimes tell if the culture's getting you by switching the sin. You switch the sin, and you're like, oh, that's ridiculous to say that. How, a pastor, imagine a pastor starting a sermon this way, which nobody would do. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here today to talk about adultery. Now, I want you to know I'm not here to bash adultery. 
I, I love adulterers. Some of, my best, some of my best friends have committed adultery multiple times. I've I, I, I spent many hours just hearing their stories and their struggles with their adulterous desires and how they've acted those out. And listen, I'm not here to, to kind of bash on them. I mean, technically, yes, it may be wrong, but we need to really show compassion to the adulterous community. I mean, Vody's like, are you kidding me? Any pastor who says that needs to get out of the pulpit. But what do we do? We demand that when it comes to the sin of homosexuality that you have 15 minutes of caveats like that about that sin. He says, that shows that we have been jammed by our culture and that we bought into this grid because we're seeing it just come out in the way that people are talking about it. Um, just like uh, trying to, like this goes back to what Greg said, trying to adopt Darwinian evolution as a useful tool. Now think for a second. Can you use it as a useful tool when you're doing science? No. Why? Because the entire structure of that belief system is incompatible with Christianity in its entirety. Does that mean every single thing an evolutionist says is wrong? No, but the framework of evolution is fundamentally flawed. So to, to adopt Darwinism as a useful tool is itself to buy into a false ideology. You see how that would work? So same with what you're saying with, with CRT, with intersectionality, to, to say there's grains of truth in here. There, there, people have been oppressed. Our country has a horrible history with racism. Those things are true. We can acknowledge that. That's evil. That's awful. Uh, as recently as Jim Crow laws, and then you go back to obviously the Civil War. I mean, there, there is a horrible past of racism in our society, and we absolutely admit that and acknowledge that and despise that. But just because there are partial truths doesn't mean the system is something that we need to incorporate into our thinking because the system is like a Trojan horse. It looks so good in some ways. It looks so compassionate and it looks so biblically nice in some ways. But there, is a, there are hidden soldiers inside that wooden horse. And when you bring it into the Christian community and you expect everything to go well in the middle of the night, the troops come out of the wooden horse and they reap destruction in the city. So as we're thinking through these things, I think there are some Christians who really do, in their heart, are trying to do what they think is right and good. But being sincere does not mean that what you're doing is biblically accurate. Uh, I think there are sincere people wanting to help that have adopted false beliefs here from this system and are trying to, uh, trying to, to, to uh, bring that to bear. Another thing, real quick, is just take the news in general. There are certain stories, just take with, with, with race issues, there are certain stories that when a news channel finds out this story has happened, they almost seem to get excited because it fits the narrative, and then it, it's broadcast every day, all day. And you know there's a problem when the news anchors or whoever runs the thing, the producers, they have to sometimes figure out what race, what ethnicity the two people or the three people were in a particular situation before they know whether to air the story. So, just again, I'm not saying that, that there is no racism. Uh, there is still racism, and there are still racist acts, and we reject that. But just as an example, in the last year, the George Floyd incident was an abomination. It was awful what happened to George Floyd. I'm sure you've seen that many times. That story got full-time press for months. I have seen other news stories that have gotten virtually no press time because the ethnicities are different from, from that story. And so, um, I've heard an analogy from someone that said, if you had a beach ball, and you had a red stripe, and you had a white stripe, and a blue stripe, and another white stripe, and a yellow stripe, and on it goes, you know, in the beach ball. If someone covered the entire beach ball and only showed you the red part, you'd probably think the whole ball was red. 
And if you're selective in the particular stories that you highlight and that you make front and center, and you then choose not to air or to hide other stories, it shows a bias that begins to distort the way people perceive what's going on in general uh, in society. And so, all these things we need to know, there's a selective bias, there's all these different things that are factoring in to the kinds of things that we are going to see. So, let me also pray and then... um, Oh, let me mention one, let me just mention this book. Now, I have not read enough of this to, to I've only read reviews and I just started it yesterday, but Carl Truman is a, is a great voice and this book just came out. A lot of people are saying this could be the book of the year in terms of these issues, some of these issues. Uh, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The subtitle is Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. It's a pretty thick book here. Uh, it's about 400 pages. Truman, a great Christian thinker, is going to be tracing how the sexual revolution came about going back several hundred years. And so, uh, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Just the introduction blew me away. I just loved it. So, uh, he's basically going to go back and look at how earlier thoughts set the stage for what we are now seeing to where… And the sentence that I think sparked him to write the whole book was that an adult man could say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body today, and that no one will look at you weird if you say that they'll look at you weird if you think that's an incorrect statement. So, in other words, 80 years ago, you'd be thought, like, what are you saying if you would have said that? But today, you're thought crazy if you don't agree with that statement. And he said, how could in such a short time that view of of these things flip-flopped? And he's going to kind of walk through a long history, and it just looks tremendously well-researched and worth uh, worth investing a few bucks in if you you have that ability. So, let, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into by what standard. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank You for just the ability to talk about these super sensitive issues, and I pray that as we watch this, that uh, we would learn more, that we would grow in our discernment and our knowledge and our ability to uh, love others well with Your truth, and I just pray that You would, again, help us to to be able to not be deceived uh, and that we would be able to demolish strongholds and anything that holds itself up against Your uh, truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just before we hit play, um, we haven't mentioned something specific that the whole documentary is about. Uh, what's it called? Uh, number nine, Resolution Nine. The, the last year in June, I think it was, of 2019, uh, and this whole documentary is spinning around this issue. So let me just tell you real quick before I sit down. Uh, every year in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, there are resolutions that are adopted, and so uh, some of these are harmless, some of these are really good, but resolution number nine in 2019, this past year, uh, resolution number nine was the super controversial one where in the actual statement, someone had proposed that we basically criticize critical race theory and we criticize intersectionality. The, it, was, it, was, it was taken by the committee and changed onto its head. It was flipped upside down and it was made to mean almost the opposite. And what they had passed through, and this was led, you know, by our president, J.D. Greer and others, uh, some from our seminary, Southern Seminary, uh, which I'm not proud of this fact, but basically they said resolution number nine is we're going to say that critical race theory and intersectionality are useful and helpful tools for Christians to, do, to, to use today. They're not, they're said that there's, there's problems with the ideology, but we can adopt them as useful tools to help us understand the world better, and that's what you are doing such a good job criticizing. And so, uh, just know that they're going to be playing a lot from that, uh, re- from that uh, session at the SBC, and then they're going to be talking about the dangerous effects of that. So, I think we're ready. <laughs> 